how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Um, yeah, this episode I'm really stoked about. I say that every time, and every time I'm just blown away by the cool people I get to talk to. Uh, in this episode, I, I speak with Zach Scow. He is the founder of Marley's Mutts. And within Marley's Mutts, he also has other programs. Uh, Positive Change Prison Program, uh, Miracle Mutts, Barks and Books, 22 and 22, which is the work he does to bring awareness to veteran suicide. Uh, he works with One Last Treats. It's another organization. So Zach of Marley's Mutts, um, he's rescued over 3,000 dogs uh, all over the world. God, what an exceptional human being. He... Uh, he said something during our during our conversation. He said um, that he was the exception to the rule because as an addict, um, a recovering addict and alcoholic, he almost died. He was at end-stage uh, liver failure. His dog Marley helped bring him back to life, you know, uh, by loving him unconditionally, the way only dogs can do. And so he now has a fully functioning liver after quitting you know, drinking and drugging and, and getting getting his body back into shape. And Marley was there with him every step of the way. And in gratitude for that, he created this foundation, Marley's Mutts. And now he, it's hard to explain. I mean, he is the exception rule, yes, because medically he's his body did something that just doesn't happen. Livers don't just come back from, from that traumatic of a... Um, an event and stage liver failure and yet exception to the rule and Zach is the exception to the rule in many cases because he his programs center around what society would deem unlovable um, as far as human beings and animals he I mean I don't know, I'm, I'm really, I'm kind of at a loss of words. I'm going to let the episode speak for itself. But we reference a lot of things in this episode. Um, and there are links on heyhumanpodcast.com for all of the foundations and all the different programs that uh, Zach, uh, whether he works with them externally or if they're within his own foundation. Uh, so that's on the heyhumanpodcast.com. Also, <laughs> please subscribe on iTunes. It's awesome if you subscribe. It helps get the word out. And other than that, I think that's, that's enough business. Let's get to it. Okay, here we go. I've been following you on Instagram for quite a while. I, I can't even remember how I first learned of all the stuff you do. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. yeah I, I'm, I'm putting a lot more effort into the Instagram these days because we rode the Facebook uh, freight train for as long as we could. And we were getting, we just had so much success on Facebook and, and our Instagram account got hacked somehow. Oh. So we had like, I think we had like seven or 8,000 fans. This was probably a year and a half ago. And um, so we had to start up another one and, and I just kind of ignored it. Not ignored it, but I didn't like, you know, it was just it's so much effort. I got to operate most of these things. I, I have some help from our adoption coordinator, and, but, you know, we're, we're doing, you know, 10 posts a day and you got to do it on it's just exhausting. It's a lot of stuff, especially if you're kind of being open and trying to be original. If only dogs had thumbs, they could do it for you. I'm you. But I got some pretty funny dogs. Like if we've done some, um, like from Baloo's perspective or from Hooch's perspective, I should do that more often. 
because they deserve personalities. Like, I know their personalities pretty well, and they, they should have more. There should be more banter. Yeah. Hooch is the one that doesn't have a tongue, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. this is, I have a Hooch, I have a Hooch doll right here. I just dropped off Hooch at my dad's house. Oh. So this is a Hooch doll. Nice. The anatomically <laughs> correct, if you open his mouth. He doesn't have any balls. Oh. That, that part's correct. And, uh, <laughs> no, you can't open the mouth. But it's from uh, shelterpups.com. All right, check this out. This is, can you see Baloo? Baloo! Oh, hi, baby. Oh. There's the Baloo. Yeah, it's a Baloo that looks just like Baloo. And his tongue... See how it hangs out here? Yeah. It's exactly what he does with his tongue. Oh See? my gosh, that's amazing. See his tongue? Where did Baloo come from? Uh, Baloo came from uh, the Mojave Animal Shelter. Okay. Which is a very obscure animal shelter um, on the Mojave Airport in Kern County, which is in the middle of nowhere. Wow. And he bit an animal control officer and he bit uh, another person um, after he got out. So he. He had kind of multiple infractions. It's difficult to uh, difficult to keep him in the loop. You know, as an adoptable dog. Yeah, that's kind of your specialty, though, right? Is unadoptable dogs. Yeah. So Baloo's a Brazilian Mastiff, and then this is Maggie, uh, an Italian Mastiff. Aww. And she comes from uh, from Eldad, Eldad Hungar. I'm not sure if you know who he is. He's a pretty famous dog trapper. I don't know who that is. What do you mean by dog trapper? He goes and catches dogs that are that are like on the run, that uh, don't know how to beat dogs, don't know how to come in, that are, have been, some of them are feral, some of them are, are just um, kind of on the lamb and or in trouble or sick, or yeah. some of them are, are imprisoned in different places. Some of them are all kinds of different stories. Some of them are just really scared when they need, they're, they've, experienced a fight, fight flight scenario and they flee they've flown so they're they, they are full shutdown you know fright mode yeah they're just like scavenging you know uh, to stay alive and he goes out and traps them and then um sends them to rescues like us so i have to tell you so clearly I, i've been following your work for a long time and i think it's incredible but you Thanks. there was there was a video that you posted and when I heard this, I record a little snippet, I'll play it for you. When I heard this, I was like, oh, I've got to have him on Hey Human. Because the whole point of Hey Human, I'm trying to connect people. Because I, you, I'm, I'm going to play the thing first. You said, for a three-legged pit bull, that's pretty impressive. And goes to show that any of these dogs can, or can do anything. Now, when we, when we judge them, when we give them labels, he's a pit bull, he's black, he's got three legs. Uh, they really mean nothing. Any of us are capable of anything at any time. And um, when we stereotype, when we judge, when we prejudge, uh, we're only doing ourselves a disservice. Amen. I mean, I heard that. I was like, oh, my God. Exactly. Yeah, I want to be, you know, I really I really hope to uh, take the opportunity to post and speak from my heart more often. You know, I, I'm a I'm an extroverted introvert, so I, I really don't like being on camera. I don't like taking videos. Uh, I do it because I have to, and it's what's helped make this organization a success. So it's just like being in, in meetings. You know, I'm, a, I'm an addict and an alcoholic in recovery, and 
I go to meetings, I still get nervous every time I share. Yeah. I still get nervous when I meet people. Um, so a lot of times I don't remember saying those things. It's, it's what I feel, and it's, it's inside of me. Um, but, you know, sometimes I'll get in a comfortable kind of groove, and I, I can speak um, stream of consciousness and freely, and, and, it, and it all makes sense. So just I know your story because I you know I've been following it um but just for the people listening who haven't heard the story in a nutshell yeah. throw it at us Boy, if you to, do you want to talk about that statement anymore I mean there's a lot I do I do because I think it speaks to that statement I mean you you yeah. were in a, a place where you almost died and felt yeah. pretty worthless you you've said in the past and I think Pretty much if you throw a rock at humanity right now, you're going to hit a person that feels that way, you know? Yeah. And we just, we spend all this time making each other feel shitty, and you know what I mean? And it's like you're, you're giving all this love to these beautiful animals who, like for me, my dog passed away in January. Still horrible, but it is what it is, and he taught me so much about love and what it means to really love unconditionally purely you know? yeah well I, I thought it was um i thought it was interesting that you brought that up because it, uh, i i have to remind myself of it every day i think we kind of live in a culture that spends so much time reminding us that we're supposed to hate one another and that we're supposed to not get along with one another and that we're supposed to think certain things of one another and you know i remember being a kid um and my dad always tells me this story and i came um i came home from practice and and I told my dad about this kid who was on our team, and he was playing third base now. So he basically stole my position. Um, he's playing third base. I know I was playing left field. And But all I kept talking about was just how good this kid was and how great he was going to make our team. And, and then my dad didn't see until game day of the weekend that this kid was black. So he always tells me that story because you know, I was a very competitive kid, and um, you know I cared greatly about sports and about how I was doing. But... Um, in that instance, I didn't give a shit what color this kid was, or even that he was taking my position, because I was, I kept thinking about how, because we live, I'm from Hermosa Beach, it's a very small city, so we had, we had a very competitive baseball team, and if, if we had, like, that one little, you know, factor, the little X factor, we could go really far, which we ended up doing, and, uh, and he sort of always reminds me of that story, and that's how I felt playing sports, I never felt any division, I never felt like I prejudged people, I just, people were people. Um, and as I've gotten older and as we, we become part of, um, as I become a part of mainstream culture and I'm privy to all these things, it's, it's really depressing. You know, we're, we're constantly, there's constantly a, a wedge driven between us. And um, I, I see it more than anything in what we've done to the pit bull. Mm. And, and pit bulls are, um, I mean, I cannot believe in a progressive society like Colorado, for crying out loud, that a, that a dog, simply because of its muscular structure um, and a bunch of fear, that we are going to outlaw a dog also that we basically created. So this is something that human beings are 1,000% responsible for. It's not the dog's fault. It's not, um, it's not, it is 1,000% human beings, humankind's, human, our fault for creating, for perpetuating, for training, for breeding, you know, these dogs. And, and also we've created um, like a scapegoat myth about the dog so that we don't have to, take responsibility for it. It's so much easier to come up with a, with a scapegoat than to actually be responsible for what we've done. And that, that, that knee-jerk, kind of a immature, ignorant reaction is, 
they are pit bulls. They are this way. They are some sort of fixed, um, uh, concrete way that's, that you, they can't be fixed. There's no hope. You know, they take the hope out of it. They take the, the love out of it. And, and, I, and we have liberal hippies, literally liberal hippies, reverting back to, like, fascist racism. It boggles my mind. Yeah. I just, I, I can't process that. It's weird to think that, you know, there are people that breed violence in a dog and the dog does something based on what the human does. It's like the gun thing where people say, oh, well, guns don't kill people. People kill people. Well, people train the pit bulls to be fighters. But I've met lovely pit bulls that are sweet as sweet can be. People are dicks. Pit bulls have a, um, just like any dog has an ability, you know, um, German shepherds are protection dogs and and cattle dogs can herd cattle and um, sheep dogs herd sheep and Pyrenees protect herds and, and mastiffs guard fences and, and pit bulls fight. I mean, that's what we, that's what human beings created pit bulls to do is be good at fighting um, amongst a lot of other things, but they have that ability in them, but it doesn't mean that that's their default frequency. Pit bulls, and that's what, uh, that's why we have to understand dog psychology. That's why we have to take the time to understand dog psychology. We take a lot of time to understand, you know, ch child and, and human psychology, but take, but we then just anthropomorphize and apply all of those ideals to dogs. And we don't even give them the respect of that. We treat them like children, like mentally deficient children, um, where we just come at them with a high pitched voice and, um, you know, a really sympathetic tone, which does nothing but exude, um, weakness, which is not something dogs respond well to. So just the whole way we approach dogs, I think in general is, is, uh, is inaccurate, is, is, is unhealthy. But when you, when a person goes out on a limb and says something like that, some people hear this guy is telling me not to love my dog. And that's not at all what I'm saying. I'm just, I tr I'm trying to have people better understand their dogs so that they can love them better. And that's so they can take their pit bull to a dog park. And then so that they can take their pit bull, you know, on the strand for a walk and not have to be so tense and not have to be so uh, so worried, so nervous. We, fear controls everything in this world, so much of this world, not everything. We, we combat it with love, but not often enough. And, and right now we're in a period of time where fear is uh, is unfortunately plaguing our society in, in every aspect, including how we deal with dogs. Um, you know, and in pit bulls in particular, you know, there's always been a scapegoat. And throughout the humankind, there's always been a scapegoat. You know, in like the... 80s, it was uh, the Doberman, and then it was the Rottweiler. You know, and th those were the ter terrible bad dogs, right? And then now it's the Pitbull. Yeah. So who knows what it'll be? In, uh, you know, it'll be the King Corso in, in 2020 or something. Did people try to outlaw uh, Rottweilers? Did they do that? I didn't think that that went that far with Rottweilers. Oh, I don't know. I just know. I just remember. I, I remember viewing Rottweilers and Doberman. That's the bad like, dogs. Hellhounds. <laughs> very bad dogs, yeah. 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 And I have, like, Marley is a Rottweiler pit bull. I have Notch as a pit bull, Hank's a pit bull, Maggie's a cane corso, Belay's a Brazilian. I have all these bad dogs. <laughs> and they all get along, right? Huh? And they all get along just fine. Yeah, they're all good. They're, You're the I mean, alpha. Notch You're their alpha, <laughs> right? You're the lead dog? Um, I mean, to a certain degree. You know, they're, they're, there's a degree for... They have to listen to me, and, and I have to maintain, do my best to maintain calm confidence, you know, or else they're, um, you 
know, they're, they're going to take batters into their own hands and, and yeah. jockey for position and, and orient themselves accordingly. And if I don't want that to happen, if I don't want the natural course of things to play out with dogs, which is, uh, which can be violent sometimes if they're having some sort of, uh, they're trying to establish their own dominance, then, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I need to, that's why walking dogs is so powerful. Walking dogs is, it's such a, um, it can be a meditation every time you do it. If you take time to center yourself, think about where you are and adjust yourself accordingly. Um, cause if you go on a walk and you, and you're pissed off, irritable, discontent, hungry, angry, whatever, it will, it will channel through the leash. Your, your vibe that you're giving off is going to affect the dog and you're going to have a terrible time. You know, Nacho, for instance, is a, is a very powerful, he's a hundred some odd pound pit bull that we got from a fighting situation. And he, if I'm not centered, then he's just going to pull the whole time. He's going to go after chipmunks. He's going to do whatever. But um, if I'm centered, he sits right by my side and I drop the leash. And he does not leave my side, and, and we cruise, and I don't even have to hold the leash. Wow. But the, the difference is, is is so palpable; it's it's funny. And Caesar used to always talk about that. That's something that another thing that people like to think is some sort of like hooey, some kind of um, you know um, bullshit mumbo jumbo. But it really is true. If you if there's proper intention behind your commands and what you're trying to accomplish, rather than anger, yeah. Then you won't I, my Mikey, that. my dog, uh, he was a Chihuahua, Dachshund, Jack Russell mix, and he was a rescue and came out of a weird situation. And I got him when he was about seven months old. And it's funny, I had him for you know ten years, and he was with me, constant companion with me. And I mean, we went on road trips, we flew together, we went everywhere. He went with me to every, every, everything. And uh, people would always say, oh, he's so mellow. He's so chill. I'm like, well, that's because I'm mellow and chill. You know, dogs will be like their people. If you're just constantly... I thought you were because he's on drugs. <laughs> yeah. I drug him real good. So the pit bull you were, you were drawn to because they're the sort of the throwaway dog that everyone's yeah. trying to figure well, out? Yeah, I mean, it was kind of a, you know, Marley, my, my dog, was a, is a pit bull. He's a Rottweiler pit bull, and... Um, he was my first, well, he and Tug, those are my two original dogs. They live at my dad's house in like the retiree home. <laughs> nice. My dad's not retired yet, but that's where the, the retired dogs go, go to thrive and drink wine and watch TV. Uh, and yeah, there was just something so special about that dog and he wasn't malicious at all, but, but wherever I take him, people would flinch and they'd pull their kids up and they, you know. But, and even what happened when I started adding dogs to my pack was Marley would, um, if there was any sort of perturbation, any sort of, when the energy, you know, flared like this, he would react and bring it back down low. He wouldn't fight. He would, I remember watching him barrel into two dogs that were fighting, two big dogs. And, you know, so there'd be this, you know, two dogs would be sniffing each other out and there'd be something that would set him off. And Marley would bum rush him. And he basically punk each dog until they got back in line and were, were mellow. Wow. And I just, I love that about him. I mean, he was just the, the consummate um, peacekeeper. He just wanted things to be mellow and chill. And he's just so good with kids and so good with people. And, and yeah, I mean, there, there are, Marley is your quintessential American shelter dog. He looks like 75% of the dogs in the shelter. He's a short-haired, multicolored pit bull. You know, 
75, 80 pounds. And, uh, I mean, at his heaviest, he's probably 90. But, um, yeah, you know, and, and people don't take a chance on those dogs, you know. And, and um, yeah, even more so in recovery, you know, dog, dogs are a lot like, shelter dogs are a lot like people in recovery. Um, you know, they've kind of been cast aside. Uh, they're at a, at a particular stage of hopelessness. Um, and they need something very, very special to, uh, to get them out of it. And, and then they also need rules, boundaries, limitations, affection, and, um, you know, exercise and guidance. You know, all, this, all the things shelter dogs need in order to thrive as dogs, as, as um, companions, are the same things that addicts and alcoholics, people in recovery need. You know, so that's why I related so much to him. We kind of just grew together. Um, and be just and, I, and like you said about your dog, he taught me so much about uh, about unconditional love and uh, and just being cool with things. I you know I have a uh, I had a long memory when it came to keeping some resentments and um, being pitiful. I, I felt pitiful often. I felt sorry for myself, you know, because I I felt sorry that I hated myself so much and I I, I saw my dogs and my dogs. 100% didn't have any self-image issues. Yeah. He didn't look at himself in the morning and be like, man, I'm just a pit bull. I'm just a black pit bull. I'm just a black pit bull. You know, I got the deck act against me. You know, he didn't come up for any reasons why the day should suck. He just every day was going to be red, and or he was going to nap, whatever. You know, either way, it was going to be a solid day. You know, if he convinced me to uh, to take him out and go do something fun, then he'd have an extra special day. And um, yeah, I don't know. He just taught me. He taught me to love myself because um, I had a very difficult time doing that. I don't know if you want to segue into my story. I can start talking about that. Yeah. I feel like I talk too much. No, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> That's the whole point of a podcast conversation. Yeah, I suppose so. I just don't want to don't want to dominate it. I I would um, like you to dominate it. Um, so yeah, I got diagnosed with, um, with end stage liver disease in, in the, um, late winter, early spring of 2008. So my liver failed and well, a lot of things started happening to me. My stomach started to get real big, started to bleed out of both ends, um, started to turn yellow and I didn't stop drinking. I started, I drank more as a matter of fact, and I just ignored it for as long as possible until... I got had to get checked into the hospital for long term care because I was, you know, I was dying of liver failure. I Did was you, very very sick. You said that you could see yourself getting like that. Were you just sort of at that stage, like, well, I'm already here. I might as well just kind of keep going. You know what I mean? Uh, I was. I just yeah well, yeah. Didn't I, care. I, didn't face it. Oh, I couldn't face it. I went to the hospital. All right, sorry. I went to the doctor. They had taken blood, and my doctor said to me, um, he sits me down. He looks at my and my, my blood test results, and he looks back up at me, and he's like, you need to go to the hospital. And I go, well, what, are you, what are you talking about? He's like, you're very sick, and you need to go to a hospital. And, and I just looked at him, and I was like, you know, well, maybe it's just because I got, I got real drunk last night. Maybe that's why. Like, are you sure that I'm pretty hungover? Like, no, 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 these are blood, blood tests. This is not something that would have been from, you know, one drunk, like your every one of your numbers is elevated, and um, you're in liver failure. And you yeah. need to go to the hospital. 
And I got back, I remember going out to my dad and, and I'd be using the car. I told him, you know, we're just going to cut back on, on the Excedrin PM and, uh, and I, you know, I should only drink with, with dinner. I didn't tell him anything about my liver. I think I said something about my kidneys. I don't know. I don't remember. But um, I, I couldn't face it. I just had this overwhelming fear of, of facing life sober. And that's what happens when you're physically addicted. I'd gone through physical withdrawals before, and it's the worst thing you can imagine. So once you've got a taste of physical withdrawals from alcohol, you just don't want to ever do it again. And I couldn't imagine, you know, there was just no, I had no identity. I, had, I could not be myself without alcohol. There was just no me without alcohol and drugs. You know, I, I, I didn't know how to be, I hadn't been myself in so long. It was just, uh, whenever I felt that uh, intense fear start to bubble up, I, I drank. And that's the only thing that kept it suppressed. You know, if I didn't drink, then it then it got to the surface, and and, and that was a base, basically like operating at the level of panic attack at all times, and I couldn't handle that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I went to the hospital. They kept me there for uh, for almost two months. Shit. I just got worse and got sicker, and and I got addicted to pain medicine in the hospital, and then. Finally, my family just broke me out of the hospital, and I got a. I, they got me an appointment at, at Cedar Sinai, which is one of the seven hospitals that does liver transplant. And I got an interview with the comprehensive transplant program, uh, Dr. Tran Tran, and she admitted me to the program, which basically exists to keep people who are in liver failure alive um, through different, you know, through routine checkups, through uh, medication management through other means by which, I mean, mostly people with hepatitis C, which is a viral condition, uh, acute alcoholic hepatitis is different. And, um, and he just, she just said, go home and, and wait, uh, you know, stay close to an emergency room and, and try to get your six months sober because you need a liver transplant. And that's the only thing that's going to help you. It's the only thing that's going to save your life. I think I had a 85% chance of dying within 30 days without a liver transplant. Wow. So, I mean, I was, like mortally ill. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, you know, I, I went home and things were terrible. I had to go through opiate withdrawal and I went to the hospital a bunch of times. I was dope sick and it was uh, fucking awful. You were know, you not I, drinking I, at I that point? Sick. No, no, I was just bedridden. I couldn't get out of bed. I was just shitting myself and vomiting blood and it was terrible. Um, and... Yeah, I started to get a little bit better. I started to walk my dogs. I, I, one day, finally, my dogs just every morning look at me like, what are we going to do today? You know, is, you're, by the way, you're the sexiest thing on the planet. They look at me like, you're the great, you're the greatest. You're just so good. And I'm looking at them like, don't look at me. You know, don't look at me. Turn, turn away. You know, I'm, I'm terrible. I'm awful. I just had this deep-seated self-loathing. I was so pitiful and like constant, constant self-loving. And, uh, yeah, I finally kind of just gave in and started walking my dogs and started journaling and started going to meetings all the time. Um, yeah, I had my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting in the hospital, which was terrific. You know, it gave us, that was the first thing that gave us some hope. And, um, yeah, and then I, I drank again like a year, a month after I got out of the hospital. I just started to get a little bit better. And, um, yeah, I don't know what it was. I wasn't sleeping, and I was still really sick. I was still yellow, and um, 
I just couldn't, I couldn't handle it. You know, I, I couldn't, I, people looked at me funny because of the way I looked and I wasn't sleeping and I didn't know how to be me and I was scared of people, places and things. And I, I just didn't know how to, to how to do it. So I drank again. I had to tell my, my dad got back from Brazil. He was gone for two days. I found the back of the spare set of keys in the truck, drove and got, I remember just getting a bottle of wine, and then I blacked out, which I don't ever do. I, I can drink a lot of alcohol and not black out. Yeah. And I woke up two days later, and there was more wine everywhere. I don't know how I got it. Um, and he was going to be there in like four hours, and I had to go walk over to him when he got back, and I, I told him, I said, we got to go to the hospital. And he said, uh, what do you mean? And I said, we got to go to the hospital. I drank again. And he looked up at me, and he didn't believe me. He just was like, you know, what? what? And I said, we have to go. I took my glasses off. I had my glasses on. And I took my glasses off, and he could see how yellow my eyes were. And uh, so he knew right then, and, and he just started crying. And he just said, you've killed yourself. You've killed yourself. You've killed yourself. He just kept repeating it. And, um, and then he was like, fuck you. I'm not taking you to the hospital. He was like, fuck you. You want to kill yourself? Kill yourself. You know? Um, and, uh, that was the last time I had a drink. Was, wow. And, and, uh, and then I kind of just became obsessed with trying to get better, was obsessed with exercising and, um, and just walking. I couldn't exercise, really. I could just walk. And then walking turned into running and then running turned into exercising and, um, just trying to eat right and just trying to survive, you know? And then I, my numbers just started to get steadily better, and I became healthy enough to uh, not need a liver transplant anymore. So, um, well, I'm still a transplant patient. And once you're end stage, once you've been that sick, once your liver has been that compromised, you're always um, a transplant patient because usually you, you die or you get a transplant. Yeah. So, you know, I'm the exception to the rule. Um, so yeah, that's where I stand now. Is I'm a I'm a liver transplant patient in good standing. If anything happens to me, if I get sick, I'm I'm in good standing to receive help and all is well. Wow, that's a hell of a story, man. Yeah. Yeah. You must heavy. feel like a completely different person that has this other person in yeah. them, you know. Cut out there. Oh, I said to feel like you know you're this other person now, but you have that person still in you. It's always in you. It'll always be in you. It's always a part of you. But yeah. you know that it's quelled. And this. Yeah, it keeps me relatable. It's one thing because I work with so many alcoholics and drug addicts that that that, that is definitely um, always at the surface. You know, it's always just beneath the surface. Um, being able to relate to those feelings and. And that makes it a lot easier to work with people who are in recovery when, when you can relate to that feeling. And you bring the dogs in to help people. I, I know you do the prison stuff now. and um, mm -hmm. you do, So talk about that a little bit because that's awesome as well. Yeah, we have a, an inmate training and like rehabilitation program. It's rehab for the dogs, rehab for the humans. So explain that, yeah. what that means exactly. We have 10 dogs living at the California City Penitentiary in Cal City. Um, 10 dogs with 26 inmates. The dogs live there in the pod, pod B3. And these are all violent criminals. 
who uh, have been, most of them have been in prison for a very long time, and all of them will get out of prison, so they're all going to need jobs eventually. And so we're trying to help them get jobs when they get out uh, in the you know, pet services industry, whether that's the shelter or doggy daycare or uh, rescue, whatever, walking dogs. People tend not to mind um, that people have felony records when it's dealing with dogs. Or, you know, we're, we're a more forgiving group of people. And the dogs that we give them are there because they're not well. They're not there because they're good. They're there because they have issues. So the dogs and the humans can relate to both being a little fucked up, <laughs> and, uh, which is great. And the guys love it. I mean, we have uh, – it's really important because I identify as an addict and an alcoholic when I'm there, and a lot of the guys are there because of uh, their own diseases. And um, so that's pretty powerful. And the guys are all mixed in with uh, race-wise, which is really, really special. Um, most of these guys don't ever interact with men of other races, and they do in our program, and they're brothers in our program, which is uh, special to watch. Everybody's on the same page. Everybody's on the same level, and uh, they help one another. And we have our issues. You know, there's personalities. You know, you got 26 felons, and there's four trainers. There's four of us, um, Kim and Leah and Lisa. And Sam has been helping us out, too. So we all go in every Tuesday, and we spend many hours there training. And the men have homework, and they got to do their thing, and it's just it's great. And the dogs stay there all the time. Yep, they live there. Wow. And then they're there for 14 weeks. It's a 14-week-long program. Then the dogs go through Canine Good Citizen certification, so which is a very difficult test. Um, two inmates take the dog through the test, five, five points each. It's a 10-point test. Um, and uh, yeah, it's awesome. Graduation is like the best thing ever. It's the coolest thing to be a part of. You've been to like a, you ever been to like a guide dog graduation where there's a bunch of blind people on stage getting their their dogs? This is kind of like that. It's depressing though because the guys leave the dogs that day. Like we take the dogs with us. Oh, that's so, gotta be brutal. Do you give them prepared for that? Oh, uh, I mean, no. I don't know how you do. I would break my heart. I mean, geez. Yeah, it was tough. And then we take two weeks off, and then we go back in with another set. We start we start out with demo dogs, and then we bring in the shelter. They're all shelter dogs. They're all dogs that come from our um, shelters nearby. Yeah. California City Shelter, Mojave, Bakersfield. Do you have to, pardon the pun, vet the prisoners so that you know that they aren't yeah. animal abusers yeah, they can't, the like? They can't be animal abusers and they can't be rapists, which actually kind of, they can't be like women abusers, which kind of cuts down a lot of the people that we can draw from, actually. I, I mean, people, at first people were like, well, they're not, they're not dangerous criminals, are they? And they're all, almost all of them are violent criminals. But they're they're great. They're great. I mean, a lot of them are probably they've been in there since they were 17 for being knuckleheads, and they've tried to mature in prison and they're trying to find an identity and they're yeah. clutching at straws to find anything to give them positive like nourishment, like spiritual nourishment. And and our program does that. So yeah. it's neat to watch them grow. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Dog is love. <laughs> Yeah, what what was right. the impetus to get you in the, the doing the prison thing? Um, did it just was that a natural from the rehab thing? A natural segue? Uh, I always wanted to do it. I really always wanted to do it. One of my best friends, Robbie, uh, was in 
incarcerated for uh, for 12 years. And he, when he got out, he adopted a dog from me. And now he operates this uh, really cool rescue called Free to Live Animal Sanctuary in Oklahoma City. And uh, I fucking love that guy. And, okay. and it's just so good what's happened to him. And he's he's the director of the of the rescue, you know. And like it was like three years af- after getting out of prison, he'd he'd worked his way up and become become that and uh he's a violent criminal and he's from my neighborhood from near where i grew up and you know if we can do that if, if that something like that can happen with him certainly if we spend all this time training these guys and, and, and we facilitate them when they get out like you know, i could have been any of those guys that are in there i could have been any one of them like i've done plenty of things in my life that could land me in the penitentiary for a long time and there's just no difference between us and and uh I mean, the, the, whatever. There are differences, I suppose, but they're negligible. Yeah. Um, and it's important. I mean, our prison system is uh, needs a lot of work. It's so broken. It's, just, mm. it's so so broken. Yeah. So this is a way we can make a difference. You know, this is a way that I can. Uh, I'm learning a lot. I'm learning a tremendous amount going in there and, and hanging out with those guys. Yeah. How do you? So where do you get your funds from? How do you do the fundraiser part? How can people? People, yeah. They just throw money at you. It's all free. No, it's all we we do it for free. I know you uh, do. I know you do, but it's got to cost an arm and a leg to to get yeah, the food yeah, and the. Uh, I just we just started the prison. I just finished up. Uh, my friend Kristen has helped us put together a fundraiser for the prison program, and we need to basically raise at least a thousand dollars a week because the trainers are coming from Los Angeles. This is two hours away from them. All the supplies, all the food, all that. I mean, like 10 dogs just going through poop bags when they live <laughs> inside a prison. So just the amount of poop bags we go through for 10 dogs, like whatever, three poops a day, 10 dogs. Wait, they can't you know? go outside, I guess, huh? They have to be, it's in the prison no, itself. No, they go outside. Oh, they, they do. Okay. Outside. All right. So, but they have to use their poop bags outside. Uh, they don't have a pooper scooper. They use their their poop bag and uh i think it's just easier to to not have like an implement like that like a pooper scooper the actual tool yeah because it could be used as a weapon sure Uh, so can poop (laughs) yeah so can can poop none of our guys are none of our guys are poop throwers that's good very well behaved yeah they're they're incredibly respectful and they're great guys and you know I've, i've grown to respect you know each and every one of them um, so yeah, we need help with that. We need help. We're trying. We're trying to get into the Tatsky Penitentiary as well. And, and you know, forty thousand dollars. It costs forty thousand dollars a year to incarcerate a man in California State Prison. Forty thousand dollars a year. And it almost it's like seventy-five percent of them will end up back in prison within three years. Seventy-five percent to spend. So forty thousand dollars for the course of that guy's life. He's in prison for forty years or thirty years. Do the math. Thirty times forty thousand. Astronomical amount of money. If we spend the money on just, on just if just one guy doesn't reoffend, and just one guy doesn't return back to prison, yeah. you know that's that's worth the program like ten times over. So I'm trying to to explain that math to people because these guys can get jobs with the with the the uh, skills that we're giving them, and they're gonna they're damn good trainers. They are becoming legitimately good trainers. 
Um, they have really tough dogs. They, they're going through everything from crate training to potty training to all kinds of obedience. I mean, those dogs are very well, very well trained when they get out. Do you know what's so amazing about that too? I feel like that because of the way dogs are, and here's the thing that's the miracle of a dog, Ugh, gets me a little choked up, is that you can get a dog who has been treated so horrifically, so horribly, and it just wants you to love it. You know, it's like it forgets, it knows, you know, that it's had it, and it might be cagey or whatever, but it just, all it wants is love. And so here are these people in prison who probably did not get love, let's be honest, you know, in a lot of ways, and probably feel pretty shitty about themselves. And then there's it's these, a weakness, yeah. yeah. It's a weakness to show that kind of emotion. Yeah, and sure. then there's these dogs now that are like, well, I'll love you, you know? It's yeah. amazing. Yeah, that's great. And it, and it sets the stage for the whole pod is allowed to be compassionate. The whole group of guys are allowed to be compassionate, and even with one another, because uh, you know, because they're being compassionate with the dogs, because they're they're striving to give these, and they take it de- deadly seriously. They're not they're not fucking around in there. They're real. They they really mean it. They, I mean, some of them and some of them enjoy being challenged immensely. You know, they really they want the tough dogs. They want a challenge. They want you know, it's really neat. Yeah, I think there are a lot of very bright people in prison. I mean, bright people tend to get bored easy, and then they get into trouble. And then prison, the way the system works, unfortunately, as you know, I'm sure that it, it's it's a money-making. Now that prison's becoming privatized and, you know, what is the incentive to let people get out, first of all? And they don't treat mental illness. They don't treat addiction. None of that stuff is really even dealt with on so many levels. Yeah, yeah the substance abuse program is, is pretty uh, inadequate. And... Um, Vocational programs are pretty inadequate from what I know. I don't know a lot, but I know about the substance abuse programs because my sponsor goes in, spends time in there, and, and they're there. They're just, you know, it's not something that is really, really focused on. They don't give them the tools that when they get out, you know, they have, you know, they can go to meetings, I suppose, but, you know, it's intimidating having been, and, and all the things you have to comply with when you get out is very, it's, you know, it's a lot of stuff you got to comply with. Some of them, when they get out, they have mouths to feed. You know, babies they have to pay for, and they, it's hard for them to get a job. Yeah. They're going to pay for these babies when they don't have a job, so they go back to doing what they know how to do. Yeah. Right. And some of them have been in prison so long that that's the life they know. So when they get out, they don't. It's sort of like, in a weird way, it's very similar to probably the way military people are who are. You know, you send them to war for 10 years, various wars, and then expect them to assimilate when they get back. It's, how do people supposed yeah, to do that? Yeah, and they learn a lot of, a lot of bad shit. They learn how to, how to do a lot of new crimes, you know? They learn how to weasel the system, and they learn how to... They learn a lot of new bad stuff. Yeah. We, uh, we just finished up a 22 and 22 program, uh, which was from the 16th to the 4th of July, June 16th to the 4th of July. And we, we rescued uh, 22 dogs in 22 days to bring attention to uh, veteran suicide. 22 veterans commit suicide every day. And um, so we got veterans involved in, in our rescues. And my buddy Joel Rocky, who started this organization called One Last Treat, he's a Navy corpsman. So he's, a, uh, he's in the Navy, but he's a, basically a combat medic 
um, entrenched with the Marines. And, um, yeah, so he, he and I worked on that together and, and saved a bunch of dogs and got veterans involved in transporting and veterans involved in being there, part of the rescues, and it was cool. Yeah, I followed that on Instagram, too, but I wanted everybody to hear that. So cool. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. What is that, that around your neck? Is that is that from what is that Tibetan? The necklace you you've got in your hand? This is actually from uh, from Nicaragua from a buddy of mine who made it. But uh, yeah, it's got it's got Eastern origins. It's just made out of um, volcanic rock. Cool. Yeah, from Nicaragua. Something grounding. I it. Yeah, I had a shitty two days. Why? Sleep at all. I had back surgery Ooh. and uh, wasn't sleeping, and then I, I we were in prison all day yesterday, and I really felt like off my game. There were a couple of the guys that were really struggling, and it's kind of my job to go speak with them, pull them aside, have talks with them, and, and get to the bottom of what what's happening in their mind. And I just felt like I wasn't being as genuine as I could have been because I was so exhausted. Like I was. There's sometimes where you make eye contact with another man when you're trying to be vulnerable. Certainly when you're doing it inside a prison with a man of the opposite race who is not used to interacting with you, you're not used to interacting with him. It's somebody that you love, somebody that you care about, but and you want to have the right answers for him. But I also was in a position where I needed to be tough. This person was in trouble, <laughs> you know, and I needed to be, you know, not enable him. And I, I just, you know, so I beat myself up a little bit from that one. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's a lot going on, a lot of responsibility and, and, you know, sometimes I still feel like a kid who's trying to catch up Yeah, in the, in the game of life. Yeah, yeah, I know that feeling. So you need to figure out how to raise 50 grand a year per program, right? Or per, wait, per inmate or per program? Uh, we need to, we need, a, like, oh, to do the prison program, yeah, we need, um, we do it three times. A year, three and a half times. So yeah, we need fifty thousand dollars a year to do it. Yeah, that's encompassing all the prisoners that take part in it. Yeah, that's to do just Cal City. So that's to do that's to graduate. That's to save basically thirty dogs and probably a hundred inmates. Is it hard when you go in to talk to the the shelters and say, "Look, this is what I'm doing." Are they pretty good about just saying, "Okay, here you go. Here's here's for the, the prison program." Yeah. Oh, yeah, they love it. That's good. Yeah. They don't red tape you to death or anything. No, no, no. Kern County Animal Services is, like, uh, outrageously supportive. That's good. I wouldn't be in any other city. Like, the, the love that we get from our shelter and, and the, the the support they give us is, is, like, second to none. It's so different. Going into Los Angeles and trying to pull a dog takes, like, an hour and a half. I walk in. I don't have to... I mean, they give us free reign to, to work because they trust us um, to pull dogs, to, to help facilitate different things, send us pictures of different dogs. They're just, they're our buddies and they're our co-rescuers. You know? Yeah. They're our people. I love them. So talk a little bit about the um, the dog meat trade. That you go in and you help get by the truck, tr- literally truckloads. These dogs are being taken to the most disturbing situations. I understand culturally yeah, that that's, yeah, I mean, it's, but it's pretty hard to have any kind of understanding, for, at least for me. I find no, it there, hard. There's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of torture involved. So, dogs, when they're killed, 
for the meat trade are usually killed um, at the, you know, you're trying to to course adrenaline through their veins and cortisol as much as possible. So you're strangling them or electrocuting them. That's how they die. And yeah. I witness it and I see them set on fire and I see them electrocuted. Uh, and that's how they're killed, right in front of me, right? In the middle of a market, middle of downtown Seoul, uh, plain as day, with, with dog meat, you know, displayed in a cage right there with cage dogs all around. And, uh, yeah, I would love to continue to be involved in that. Um, I don't know. I mean, we, we are in that we still accept dogs from Soy Dog Foundation. You know, we go over, we've been over to Thailand a couple times. I've been to Korea in the trenches, and, and that was definitely an experience. Um, but uh, so we support Soy Dog Foundation, and we try to help them as much as possible and, and pull dogs. And um, yeah, it's, it's the culture and the paradigm is going to shift. It's just a matter of time. You know, we keep it's been exposed, we keep shining a light down on it. It's going to be um, it's going to change, but it's got to happen within Korea, it's got to happen within China. You know, China. It's not going to happen because some Brit or some American comes in there and tells them to. It's going to have to happen from within. Yeah. Can you talk a minute about uh, one of your experiences when you were in Korea or when you were dealing with that? Or is it just... Yeah, I mean, we. I was shocked at how easy it was to find dog meat farms and how easy it was to find markets, how easy it was to find restaurants that serve, you know, there's restaurants that serve dog meat soup especially in the, uh, in the summertime. And they believe that dog meat keeps, you, keeps your body temperature regulated. Um, so it was everywhere. And, and then the, the farms were enormous. They were just, there were some smaller ones. Like we went to a couple small ones and we rescued Mac and May and then Seoul, a golden retriever. People talk all kinds of shit too. They think we planted them there. They didn't think there would be a golden retriever at a dog meat farm. And uh, they thought the video was like staged. It was unbelievable what people, the shit people talked. Uh, but it was, it was horrific. There's so many dogs there, and they're in such deplorable conditions. And uh, you know, all you can hope to do is, is you know, I played kind of a Western like exposer, right? Where I had my camera, I had a video camera, I had a GoPro, and my job was to kind of get them to give us dogs. You know, and scare the shit out of them. When Nami Kim, the gal I was with, she knew everything about the rules and the regulations to scare these people into, and this is like polluting groundwater, noise pollution, stuff that they could get cited and ticketed for. So not actually having dogs. That's not necessarily illegal. Uh, it's the other stuff. And it was pretty horrific. I mean, it was really horrific, uh, a lot of the things we saw. And, and I was just surprised that that many people, um, some of the neighbors of the dog farm were, were over it. They were, they were pissed off, and they didn't want them there, and they thought negatively about it, a couple of them. It just kind of depends. It didn't pocket, you know? It's, it's kind of like, you know, some people fly the Union Jack flag proudly because of their, their Civil War Southern heritage, um, and other people think it's the worst thing in the world. Right. And they all, they could live next door to each other, you know? Yeah. Wow. So what's your, what's your plan? Do you have a big plan? What's next? For, uh... It's everything. Uh... What's next is I want to um, I want to help rehabilitate dogs and people in one place. So I want to have a I want to create a center where we can rehabilitate people alongside dogs, just like what happened with me. Yeah. So that's my goal. That's awesome. This is a creative of a rescue ranch. 
bird, humans, and dogs. That is, that is my, that's my jam, that's my goal. So if you... Um, I, I have everything in my head. Huh? Repeat that? Uh, I was going to say, I have everything in my head and everything yeah. in my heart to accomplish it. Uh, I just need to raise the money. Yeah. Well, if you ever do a fundraiser so, in Nashville, yeah. I can get you a handful of musicians that would totally be there for you. So, just so you know. Well, that'd be amazing. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're in Nashville. Yeah, I'm oh, in Nashville. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've never been. I hear good things. Oh, it's a good town. Good food. It's fun. Yeah, it's yeah. it's it's growing exponentially. It's it's a little nutty, but you know, it's a lot to do, a lot to see. Cool. Yeah, I'd love to go. So do you think that the you seven years ago would have, could have wrapped his head around the you now? Seven years ago, right? Is that what you said? Uh, eight, almost eight. Eight. Uh, um, that's a good question. I, I don't think, no part of me thought that I would be raising dogs for a living and yeah. working with addicts and alcoholics. I mean, soon after I got into sobriety, I knew that the key to my sobriety was working with other people, but I didn't know that I would be doing it, you know, that that, that, that would be what makes me happy. Um, that, that is what truly, like, you know, stokes my fire is, is working with other people that are struggling. Like, I, I don't... I don't ever feel quite as alive as I do when I, because you just, you, that's when you, because it's hard for me to stay grateful. I can't just, I don't wake up grateful. I don't go to bed grateful. But when I work with, it sounds weird, but it's probably a lot of ego related. But I, when I work with somebody who's struggling, I remember what it's like to struggle. And, and, um, and then it, it's all, it's all there. It all makes sense, you know, and, I, and then I, it's tangible. Um, I don't just feel grateful, and that's part of whatever my mental illness. You know, that it's difficult for me to be just happy. I have to be. I have to be active to be happy. My my default, you know, frequency isn't necessarily stoked. You know, I'm. Uh, I have to be doing something to be. I have to be in action to be happy. Yeah, it's a good thing to know about yourself. I hope. Yeah, sometimes you know, I like to say sometimes you're in the very last place you look. Yeah. yeah, that's a good one. It's the way it is. Yeah. Thank you so much for talking on the podcast. I really yeah, appreciate you're, it. You're, you're absolutely welcome. Um, shoot me a... Yeah, thank you to all the listeners. And please go to marleysmuts.org. And, and donate! Support our, I'll put stuff, yeah. I'll put links up on my website too and, um, and do all that stuff and, you know, okay. get the word out. And good luck with everything. All right. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you very much for, uh, for taking the time and showing interest. Uh, the pleasure was all mine, honestly. I'm just, I'm so happy that people like you exist in the world, thank God, you know? I mean, not just from the animal perspective. I mean, I'm super happy that there are dogs out there that, who had no chance that now have a chance, but I'm glad that there are people out yeah. there as well. Same thank thing. Thank you, I appreciate it. Bye.